podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is widely regarded as one of the most exciting and talented baritones of his generation. Morgan Pierce made his professional debut with the English National Opera and has gone from strength to strength ever since. Performing from the Konzertgebouw to the Sydney Opera House, from New Zealand to Germany. Currently based in London, he still calls Australia home, so I'm delighted that Morgan has found time during one of his Australian visits to come and speak with me now. Morgan Pierce, a very warm welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me what expat life is like now for an Aussie in London, especially oh. in the performing arts world. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, broadly speaking, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been um, the case of if you are over in London or, or, or indeed anywhere else in Europe or, or, or the United States, careers tend, tend to go all sorts of places at the same time if you're lucky. Um, and so um, London has for many, many years not been... A, uh, a sort of permanent home for a guesting artist, uh, which most uh, opera singers are these days. The, the sort of uh, the ensemble uh, model left the UK quite a while ago. I'm lucky enough to have, uh, you know, certainly this last year had a, had a very busy year running around the world and 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 doing what I love. So um, when I've been in London, it's been nice to be at home and be surrounded by my my loved ones and uh, and and all the various things I've been able to pick up around the world. And um, yeah, L- L- London's all right. It's a it's still it's still a big international capital city, despite. Um, Despite what you may uh, hear on the news. <laughs> ah, right. Uh, has it, you, so you, you've been obviously had a busy year. So you feel things have fully come back from a certain pandemic. The funny thing that's happened, I think, through COVID is because opera houses and and thank goodness they have done this. Um, they've been very loyal to their artists. So if an opera house has cancelled something, they've they've you know said I'm sorry. You know sometimes they've given uh, you know part payment of contracts, sometimes full payment of contracts. Um, and the same goes for orchestras. But then um, the first port of call when everything um, sort of reemerged from the, um, the the dreaded C word uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is uh, to go back to the artists that didn't have the chance to perform and say, hey, so we know we couldn't do, you know, um, Haydn's um, The Seasons, but we have this creation coming up next season. So why don't mm. we hire you? Because, you know, that would be perfect. So the rescheduling thing is is still happening. Really, the first new season that people are, are, are casting for um, is the 2020, uh, 2023 still has a lot of rescheduling. So it's right. really about 2024. So 2024 is really the first completely fresh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And and so in Europe, um, opera seasons and orchestral seasons start in September. So it's 23, 24. Kind of like school. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, well it's funny that, isn't it? Um, but yeah, so the, the 23, 24 season will probably be the last season that um, these reschedulings are happening. And then 24, 25 is yeah. really finally something new. I mean, planning for opera houses and orchestras happens so far in advance. It's something I didn't really realise until I sort of, you know, started working professionally. If you're being hired for something in April, um, well, next season's already cast because they've had to announce it, um, you know, a year in advance. And the big roles, um, you know, um, will be cast, you know, at least three years in advance for brand new productions in in big opera houses because they have to plan. They have to, you know, particularly if they're booking around famous people. There's, um, I've just come back um, from working in Zurich for um, several months on on a brand new production of The Marriage of Figaro. But right now they're doing a Tosca there with, um, you know, with Kaufmann 
and I'm sure that he's known that he was coming to sing three performances of Tosca in Zurich for five, if not six years. Yeah. Um, and the planning around that would have had to fit in with his diary, and you work back from that. So um, a lot of uh, singers will know what they're doing, at least in the broad, big artistic strokes, you know, at least sort of two, three years ahead, mm. which is kind of kind of amazing. I mean, yeah, the lifestyle is not to everyone's taste because we're on the road a bit and you're living out of a suitcase a lot. And mm. I can't tell you the number of little pep- <laughs> pepper and salt shakers I now own oh. um, because you always buy new things and you forget to bring them from your stash of little pepper and salt <laughs> and stuff you're olive oil. To take to exactly. Stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh gosh, yeah. now I need to buy knives again because I don't like the knives. You know, <laughs> I've got so many. If you, if you need knives, give, give me a call. I have so many spare kitchen knives now. It's, <laughs> Well, as long as you're not panicking that there's a small gap in your schedule in April 2028, um, I think. Uh, uh, Well, you know, uh, look, as uh, as ever, I think um, now more than ever, I think people are are just happy to be back working and we're happy to be able to have audiences. And when your job relies on 2000 people getting indoors, listening to you make music with other friends, it was not really conducive to, to yeah. a global pandemic it <laughs> was, no, not at was all. spread by <laughs> no well i think we have to have a bit of music now to <laughs> cleanse us from uh, the pandemic uh, what have you got for us first so i i wanted to start off with some bach so i had my my start into classical music through the works of um, jazz bach in, in high school and because i was lucky enough to be exposed to all of the cantatas um, across my six years of high school here in Sydney. I had the chance to sing some of them as a treble, some as a baritone, some as a what I call a V8 alto, an alto just ready to go. <laughs> it's got, you can just you can hear it's like a V8 engine. And so to start off, we have um, one of the early uh, wedding cantatas that Jazz Park wrote, and this is the the duet between the tenor and the bass. It's about praising God. Uh, and right at the end, you hear this lovely little descending little passage from the, the first violin all the way down to the last note, which, which is done by a, a cello. It's like a prayer dropping from heaven. And I just, I, I remember performing this when I was, uh, I think I was, you know, 16 years old at school. And it was just one of the most magic things. It made me fall in love with the stories as, as well as the music itself. Thank you. 
The duet from J.S. Bach's Cantata Der Herr Denket an uns, the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra and Choir, directed by Ton Koopman, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, the baritone Morgan Pierce. So that gave you the singing itch, because I can imagine that uh, you didn't quite have the mellifluous voice you have now <laughs> when you were the boy Not soprano. when I was 13. Not no. when you were 13. I was always loud. I think my mother will always tell Surely anyone not. who... Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> There's there's some story I remember when I was in like preschool and there was some like you know Santa play something about Santa and the reindeer and apparently I was cast as Santa and that that was something my my mother loves to loves to tell people that I was you know loud and excited to be on stage from a very young age so and I, 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 whilst I don't remember exactly doing that but I, I how how could it not be true <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean there, there's something about getting on stage that even if you're feeling unwell in, in uh, in theatre circles, we refer to it as uh, doctor theatre because uh, you can be feeling absolutely awful and then you walk out on stage and suddenly something happens and it just works. Might it's be great. called adrenaline. But, uh, yes. But, but it's, <laughs> it's a, a great cure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I get my adrenaline from walking on stage. So, yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> it's wonderful. It should be. Yeah. But you were always in the choir. It was always yeah, singing. Yeah, and that was... Um, well, I was a classical guitarist. I, I, I learnt guitar and uh, I loved that. But singing was the perfect combination of... It was what everyone else did. I had a, we had a great music director at my high school at the time, and it was um, it was fun. It was cool. Every boy in my in my rugby team was in the choir. Goodness, uh, it, was, it, was, it wasn't that yeah. way in my school. Well, it was yeah. That's that's what it was very very special for me to be um, you know surrounded by a place where you know half the boys in the school played a musical instrument, and it was expected and fun. And if you if you did it well, you may as well do it well. And so I had a I had a really really wonderful time being exposed to sort of quality classical music and um you know education is 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 what grounds careers in in classical music just as it grounds careers in any industry so um being exposed um to music meant that i could then see that i had the you know the the genetics and that sort of natural talent and then also the desire to to work at my singing and do it to this day, you know, and it's, um, I think one of the, one of the failings of, of, of education nowadays is that we don't give every single child that opportunity. And so that's why I'm so incredibly thankful of the, of, of the opportunity that I had when I was younger. And, um, you know, I just, I, I, I wish there was more that we could do in, in this country and indeed in the UK where, where I call home now, to ensure that classical music um, and just music in general is something that everyone can be exposed to from a really young age because it, 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 we don't know. There might be other amazing singers or um, you know, violin players or, or any other instrument, bassoon players, that are lurking within you know, primary schools around the country. Um, that and never, how do we know if they exactly, don't get the Exactly, to yeah. And also sing. One, of the, mm. one of the problems in classical music generally is always trying to get audiences for something that a lot of people see as elitist and a lot of people see as old-fashioned and a bit fuddy-duddy and sort of, oh, that's for, that's for someone else, that's not for me. And the bandwagon I'm always going to go on is it's for everyone. You just probably haven't experienced it and you probably haven't been you know, sat around a pub um, next to me because I will endlessly talk to you about how wonderful it is to come along and watch you know, Don Giovanni and you know my opening line used to always be you know before the opera started you know don giovanni slept with 2064 women i said this at a pub in new zealand to a guy and uh, and his wife turned and said i know someone like that and and instantly i was you know it was wonderful and then i gave them my comps to this um 
uh, to this uh, this concert of uh, singing Mazzetto uh, with the um, the Philharmonic Orchestra, and they loved it, uh, and it was fantastic. You know, and it was the first time they'd been. It was to the first like time that. they'd been to any any classical music, but to to have that experience where someone who sort of you know knew um, how to introduce someone to it in an easy and nice way yeah. um, meant that people could go along. And I think it's the same with kids. It's even it's even more inspiring when you work with children. Um, I've had a few experiences you know, over the years doing things with massed choirs with kids, and it's just wonderful. It just makes you feel all you know, excited about, about working in this industry. Yeah. And I, just, I, I want everyone to have that chance. Yeah. Just like the reason I'm here now, which um, is for the Handel Society, which was in the Opera House, you know, ha- being, being someone walking off the street, going into a concert hall and he- seeing nearly a thousand people on stage, a choir of you know, 700 mm. and orchestra yeah, soloists. Yeah. Um, it, there's something incredibly special about live acoustic music um, being made in incredible spaces. Concert halls are incredible spaces and being made at a quality level that just can inspire you. Well, we're just going to have to get you into more pubs talking with uh, promiscuous husbands by the sound of things, and that's a good start to get some more audiences along. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> no, but I, I, I genuinely, I think, I think being able to find a way to get the general public and also to get people who have children to go, do you know what, instead of booking to go along to a comedy event, instead of booking to go uh, and watch a football match, we're, gonna, we're just going to go and watch an opera. We're going to go and watch mm-hmm. something. Um, opera um, and classical music in general is something that is elite, just like sport, just like anything else. Um, but we need to find a way to make sure that the we can keep it being elite without being elitist. Mm-hmm. And the, the most important thing for me is to introduce people to the power of live acoustic sound. I love the fact that opera... Um, in particular, is you know is something that is produced without a microphone. It's produced in in a hall, and it ha- and the power and magic of human vocal production is is what gets me excited about watching friends and colleagues, and mm. and that's something that I think the general public can get excited about too. And that, and I just you know I, I I I'm I'm in love with the joy of um, incredible singing, and mm. and it. it something to marvel at and that's that's probably a, a wonderful segue into it into our next piece i was I going imagine. to say because our, ne- our next tenor is someone who is an incredible singer and in fact brought a lot of people uh yes into the world absolutely of opera. and um, and indeed this is this is this this track was on a um uh, i bought a magazine and it came with a cd of music that i thought was the music of eric clapton uh on the cd and in, in, instead it was eric clapton put a cd on this this magazine of his favourite pieces of music that he'd ever listened to, and this was on it, and I was it the only classical work? Yeah, uh, no, there were others. Right. But, um, there was. Uh, How funny! There was something. I think there was some Bach. Actually, it was quite extraordinary. But I will never forget listening to this. It, the most glorious sound coming out of Pavarotti's, uh, a young Pavarotti's, you know, uh, body, singing the little solemn mass, which is neither little nor solemn, by Rossini, and uh, just with piano, it's it's just an extraordinary piece of piece of singing. Love it. Yeah. 
principal Luciano Pavarotti with pianist Leone Maggiera for the Domine Deus from Rossini's Little Solemn Mass, the choice of my guest in conversation today, the baritone Morgan Pierce. You mentioned you were interested in the Eric Clapton album. Uh, <laughs> was it always classical music then, or is there a sort of a, a, a Morgan Pierce boy band that we've, <laughs> that we've missed out on? Do you know what? I, I, I never really got into pop music. I, I get asked this a lot whenever you do interviews. They say, oh, so what music do you like outside of classical music? And there's actually very little. I, I spend most of my time doing music as a job. And um, so when I do sit down and listen to classical music for pleasure, you know, I do love it. But there's there's not a lot outside of some very predictable choices depending on the time of the year and my other half is from Texas, so we have a little bit of country music in the house, which uh, I've always loved the the idea that country music is what's the quote uh, three chords and the truth. That's country lovely, music yeah. has, it's mm-hmm. got it's got that in common, I guess, with with leader in a way that it it's it's much more about what you say and how how you're producing the sound uh, as opposed to you know um, necessarily the complexity of the of the melodies sometimes. Yeah. Isn't, like, isn't leader sort of three chords and angst? Chords <laughs> well, yeah, three. definitely. I think there's something about, particular, well, if I, if I had to grow up in Germany in the, you know, um, in the time when all of it was being written where there was no central heating and I, you know, I had one jacket and then, um, no wonder they get excited about spring you know, <laughs> when yes. all the flowers come out and suddenly you can, like the, the gorgeous woman across the road is wearing a dress. Ooh. <laughs> um, you know, no wonder. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, German leader is, is something that has a, um, there is a lot of angst and, and a lot of loss. But, you know, if I, if I was living at that time, I, I, I would have been very angsty as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's have some because yeah, sure. uh, you're talking about the German leader, uh, funnily enough. And uh, what's this one? So this is, uh, this is Die Meinacht by Brahms. And this has one of the most important little symbols in it, uh, which is the nightingale. The nightingale famously sings by itself at night. And so this really links in with the idea of German angst. And um, there's two little phrases here um, uh, about the, the solitary hot tear flowing down the man's cheek. And just like the nightingale singing this beautiful music, uh, wanting not to be alone, um, we get that same, you know, German angst uh, <laughs> from, uh, from, from the text here in, in Brahms' Die Meinacht.
Thomas Allen, the baritone, and the pianist Jeffrey Parsons for Die Meinacht from Brahms's Four Songs of Opus 43. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Morgan Pierce, baritone. We heard about you singing all those Bach cantatas at school. How do you then turn that into a career? Oh, gosh, a lot of luck. A lot of people are who I owe my career to uh there's my ous out there (laughs) well well i i I, definitely and and also it's um i think in any career is a combination of um just innate natural ability and i I always talk about the voice kind of like a like a car so you can always learn to drive your car better but you know some people just have a different model some people have a lamborghini some people have a truck some people have a you know a, a uh, a Toyota Camry and you know the Camry driver can never be the Lamborghini driver but if you learn how to drive your instrument then you can then you can do very well with it and so I've relied on teachers um, and, and you know you start off with teachers at university and some people are, are, are lucky just to click with teachers and I, I had a couple you know here, here in Australia and in the uh, and in the UK when I studied um, at the Royal College of Music who were able to sort of pinpoint things and and somehow get in my head ways to use my voice and after you learn how to use your instrument um, you then also need to remember that being a being a singer you're essentially in a sales job your your entire career because you have to be an advocate for yourself and constantly think about singing the right things you have to make sure that the conductors and casting directors are not only are you singing auditions for these people but they think of you when they want to cast their next opera and so there's this constant sort of hustle going on with with the singer's career and um, there are some singers who are lucky enough to just have all of the work come to them but certainly for voice types that are slightly more common um, particular um, baritones is one of them also um, you know, lyric sopranos um, and, and and lighter soprano voices voices that are not as unique as others There's, you're talking about unique in terms of pitch and timbre rather than yeah the, absolutely I mean so so the character because I thought the character of your voice regardless of the what range you're singing in is the most important selling feature um I, I mean it it's all about the package. You yeah, know, you have to you have to look you have to look the part. You have to sound the part. Yeah. You also have to be um, someone who gets along with people. I think the the age of the you know, the diva the diva, yes. the diva has has uh, hopefully started to dissipate, if not completely disappear. Yeah, I, I, I think the the more rare voice types, particularly the you know we've we've heard Pavarotti already, these these big you know. You know, glorious tenor voices. Um, that keeping in mind, the tenor voice is not that much higher than the baritone voice. The top C is only a minor third above the A that you would sing in the Barbara Seville as Figaro. Right. Um, but um, the character and the sound of that voice is just such a unique thing, and it's it's a much rarer, um, it's a much rarer voice type. Baritones are, are much more common right, uh, as a voice type. So we have to, you know, I think I think there's there's a lot more of us. Um, naturally um and uh, so we have to you know make sure that we're we're always you know auditioning we have to make sure that we're always in front of people and there's always this kind of hopefully um well i, I think the most successful uh, singers i know are singers who are quite plucky people who are not only interested in in the repertoire and the singing and the advocacy of you know classical music as as something for people outside of the industry but are also people who are interested in trying to find opportunities and create opportunities for themselves. And there is a synergy between all of that. 
that you generally find in in successful artists. They're they're people who not only love the industry, but then and, and love the music. But they they they're passionate about trying to create opportunities for them and also for their colleagues. And you know, I, I'm lucky lucky enough to be in a place where that that's kind of been my experience over over the last year. Mm. One of the roles you've been playing earlier this year, and you, you mentioned uh, the top was Marriage of Figaro. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so is that why we've got a bit of that now? Absolutely. And I, I, I keep realising that my most favourite bits of um, pieces of music that we've gone through to um, haven't always included uh, my own voice type. Um, certainly <laughs> the case now. I just adore this this uh, multi recording. And this is, uh, this is Por de Amor from The Marriage of Figaro, sung by Margaret Price. Margaret Price, the soprano for Porgi Amor from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. Ricardo Muti conducting the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. The choice of my guest, Morgan Pierce, today. And uh, Morgan, you said that you particularly like this one. You particularly like the Ricardo Muti recording. What is it about it that's special for you? The amazing thing about this this whole recording is there's some, what I would say is quite dangerous tempi. And this is a really quite reserved tempo for this particular aria. And as soon as I hear the way uh, the orchestra shape the sound and the way it's sung, I just imagine this woman sort of walking in, I, I, you know, almost like she's 
she's had her fourth bottle of wine <laughs> and it's 11 o'clock in the morning and she's done and she can't deal with it anymore. And all you want to do is just give her an enormous hug. It's just, it, it, it's amazing how changing the tempo of an aria and changing the feel can just synergize with, I mean, I've never had the opportunity to watch a production um, with this particular recording, but it's a, um, I can imagine it because I, I think the character has come out of the orchestra, it's come out of the tempo, it's come out of the shaping of the sound by by singer, orchestra, conductor, and it, and it just evokes something for me that, that I find really special. Mm. So tell me about that first time you walked out on the, uh, it was the English National Opera stage. Oh, uh, gosh. For your first I was opera. Utterly petrified, Simon. I I have um, always too, been very good with nerves. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, I uh, I've I've generally always been pretty good with nerves. Yeah. Um, but I froze. It was one of the first oh. times I've ever frozen uh, on the side of stage. And John McMurray, who was um, working in casting at the English National Opera at the time, um, uh, rest in peace, John. But he uh, he he gave me a little shove. So the, the start of the start of the Barbara Seville, you get yum, and I was on the side of the session. Oh my goodness! I'm about to walk out in front of nearly two and a half thousand people at the London Coliseum in Jonathan Miller's production, beautiful show. I'm singing the main role, and this is the most famous aria in all of opera. And that was in 2015, and I had no work in my diary. After, After this, this. <laughs> so I had. It was uh, all riding on this I think one it was, moment. Yeah, I think I, th I think it was eight shows I was doing, and it was the first show, uh, late September 2015, and I just froze, and I was so overwhelmed, I froze, and it's never happened, never happened since. Um, I felt nerves since, but I've never frozen, and thank goodness that, that John was there to give me a little shove onto stage. But it was it was a great, great, great show that time. Uh, I was introduced to my my friend. Um, uh, Eliezer, uh, who was uh, singing, uh, singing the Count. I was also able to play guitar on stage oh, and accompany you've kept him. That up and, uh, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was really good fun. And uh, so that was, uh, yeah. One, one, one day someone will ask me to do Don Giovanni, maybe, and I'll be able to play the cantonetta and sing it. Um, I need to buy a mandolin and, and start practicing now. Ooh, yes. Ooh, yes. <laughs> get, ready get, ready, get ready for that 2029 booking. Uh, yeah, well, it <laughs> hasn't been asked yet, so, you know. <laughs> oh, there's always next year. Because uh. the English National Opera, they sing it all in English, don't they? Or they do. That... Everything is translated. Everything is translated. So what was that like? I really you... like it. You like it? I like it because it's not the same as the original language, but audiences don't always engage, particularly with comedy, unless they have immediacy to the mm. text. And it's not the same. Yes, you know, something like um, The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart and De Ponte, you know, beautiful text, beautiful music put together. The text for The Barbara Seville is not the greatest text on planet Earth. There are there are better marriages between librettist and composer that, that are out there. And the audience, when you're doing a comedy, they're laughing exactly at the jokes when you're saying a joke. Not slightly stage. before or slightly Not after. Not slightly before or after because they're reading a translation. And yeah. for me, the ideal situation is every word that you sing, the audience understands and they are with you the whole way, which means that you require an audience who speaks the language. But you know what? If you can have a translation and it makes something more accessible mm. and it's a good translation then I don't necessarily see a problem with putting on a translation. I think that's part of the 
reason that um, you know, English National Opera have existed was to try and uh, um, you know put something on stage that that was more accessible for an audience that weren't necessarily listening to the text. I mean, sing, singers at the end of the day, we spend most of our time not just trying to make pretty sound, but also trying to understand what we're singing. Mm. And, and, and that's the hard thing is, you know, if, if, you, if you're singing Bella Siccome or Angelo and you don't know as beautiful as an angel, then you, you're probably not going to be singing it in the right way. I get quite frustrated sometimes when I hear people saying that the only... Oh, I don't need to understand the words. I just listened. It's so beautiful, and I understand anyway because I can look at the staging. But really, mm. you know, we, we spend our whole time dealing with the words. Yes. Is the Eno the only place in the world that does that? Do you know, translating it into the local language? Um, I- the Commercial Opera used to do it um, in Germany, so you'd get German translations of operas. So instead of Le Nozze di Figaro, you'd get Figaro's Hochzeit. Um, right. Uh, and you'd translate everything into into German. There are examples of um, operas translated into other languages, you know, just in the same way that we have, you know, English versions of the Magic Flute. I think the Met still do an English version of the Magic Flute as well. But I think as, as far as English language, uh, English National Opera is the only place that does it exclusively in English, you know. Mm, I'm surprised it hasn't uh, happened here to some extent, like uh, even in a small way. It's interesting, isn't it? I think a translation can really um, invite an audience that don't speak a language closer um, to the action of what's happening on stage. I think with with certain operas it works better than others. With operas that don't have a terrific libretto in the first place, I think it works better. And with operas that are comedies, I think it works better because, uh, as we've already touched on, I think mm. it has a uh, there's a primacy to an audience laughing with you as opposed to reading a translation and and not sort of following along exactly mm. um yeah we're, at the end of the day we're actors who sing not singers who act mm. a very different kind of opera now i think uh from handel what have you got oh well this is this is an interesting one this is not per se an opera uh oh. it's a uh, What's yeah the... it, it's it's called a serenata so oh. Han- handel wrote heaps of music yes and quite early on he wrote a piece called apollo and daphne now apollo and daphne is only about half an hour long um it's for a small ensemble um, and one soprano and one baritone slash bass. And this is the final number from uh, Handel's Apollo and Daphne. Apollo has chased Daphne. He's fallen immediately in love with her and she said no. And then he's realized that he's made a mistake in trying to pursue her. She's escaped by turning herself into a tree, as you do. And with his tears, Apollo is going to let her grow. And what you'll hear is you'll hear the exact same tune that Handel later recycled for the finale in Alcina. And it's an absolutely beautiful, plaintive piece of, uh, piece of singing here from Thomas Bauer and uh, La Risonanza. Oh, <laughs> 
Piana, Comie Pianta, or Dearest Laurel with My Tears from Handel's Apollo and Daphne. Thomas Bauer, the baritone, uh, La Risonanza, directed by Fabio Bonizzoni. The choice of my guest in conversation today, the baritone Morgan Pierce. Has that uh, appeared in your repertoire? I have sung that a few times, actually. Yeah, mm. yeah, I, I had the chance to do it both in the UK and also in Germany and then also in Russia. Um, in <laughs> Russia? The, yes. We don't talk about that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, like, it, it's... Um, Look, during the Second World War, we we still played Beethoven in London. Um, oh, oh no, I know. And uh, yeah, I'm just but, yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the tragedies of all this is I, I've made so much beautiful music um, with incredible musicians um, in in Russia almost every year for the last you know the last decade, and um, it's a real shame that we're in this situation now that potentially means that we'll never have the chance to go back. Yeah, um, or at least not not, well, for, not the, for a while, not for the conceivable future anyway. And um, well, maybe after a regime change, you never know. Well, these yeah, things can happen quicker than you think. Sometimes. sometimes they can happen quickly, and sometimes, sometimes they take forever. Just take forever. Mm. And it's 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 always been mm. an amazing place to to make music for me. And I've got amazing colleagues and amazing friends in that country. And I just I hope to go back someday. That was a sort of that oratorio. Serenata. A serenata. So they're like mini operas. Yes. Well, you've had serenatas, operas. We've had, um, you know, choral works as well. Do you have any kind of preference between the genres? It's really tough because every time you walk out and you do something, you're just like, I mean, uh, well, I touched on this when we met previously and talked about Handel's Messiah. Um, and even though I've done that piece more than 100 times, you walk out on stage and it's just, it's magic every time. Mm. And I think... Probably the, the hardest work you have to do as a singer is singing leader because you have no costume, you've got no orchestra, you see you and a pianist and you're much more exposed. And if you're doing something like Winterreiser or you're singing one of those song cycles, usually that's more music in that, you know, one hour long recital than you will ever sing, ever, in any opera. So if I tallied up all of the the minutes that I was on stage singing in The Marriage of Figaro as the title role, it would probably be less than Winterreiser. Mm. Uh, Winterreiser is you know, almost an hour and a half long. And it's, it's, it, yeah, and, and it's without a break. So it's much more intensive. And there's a, there's a sort of reward in, in, in doing that kind of serious music. But I, I, I have to say, I, I adore creating characters and trying to find a way to perform oratorio and create characters from something that isn't naturally as inherently dramatic um, as an opera, um, so it doesn't give you the immediate drama, is something that I really love. And I love working with orchestras. There's something really special about being on stage with the orchestra. I just adore it. Mm. I spoke about a whole lot of genres, but I think uh, the genre of this next one doesn't fit into any of the ones we've had so far. <laughs> <laughs> such is the <laughs> such is the delightful uh, smorgasbord you've presented with us today. Well, yeah, absolutely. I want to give you sort of different touchstones yeah. from, from 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 musical moments in in in, in my life, and uh, there, there's nothing more exciting than sitting on stage with an orchestra and a choir behind you, just going for it. <laughs> 
And the start of Vaughan Williams' Sea Symphony, I did it in one of the cathedrals in the south of the UK for the first time. I think it was in Canterbury Cathedral with a, with a choral society, a local one, a couple of hundred people and the local orchestra. And my goodness, what a sound that was. And then to do it subsequently with the London Symphony Orchestra and have, a, um, uh, and have several more performances of it, um, it always just, uh, it just grabs me from the, the, those first opening moments in the brass section. And the way that it just soars, it's just absolutely stunning. And you're sitting there, sitting at the front of the stage with this wall of sound coming behind you and it, uh, it's indescribable. I just love it. Today a good brief presentative of ships sailing the seas, each with its special flag or ship signal. Of unnamed heroes in the ships, of waves spreading and spreading far as the eye can Dashing spray and the winds piping and blowing.
Mark Elder conducting Halle for A Song for All Seas from Vaughan Williams's A Sea Symphony. The choice of my guest today, Morgan Pierce, baritone extraordinaire. And not just a baritone, Morgan, because I was looking at your website and I was interested to see that uh, you also put yourself out there as a voiceover artist and, and in multiple languages, <laughs> which is probably not surprising given given the what opera the opera world has given you. Well, look, <clears throat> to, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I think that was me in the pandemic trying to fig- figure out what on earth to do whilst the entire industry was shut down more than anything something, else. Something <laughs> you, can rec- you can record from the closet under the stairs. Well, I, I, it's always puzzled me why why opera singers don't do any voice acting work. I mean, we we have pretty pretty good voices and actors do it all the time. I mean, it, yeah. it's sort of uh, just a normal thing for for stage actors to have a, a side hustle in the voice the voice acting industry and uh, you know, why not opera singers as well? So I, you know, it was it was a little thing and a friend of mine got me to do a couple of little things and who knows, may, may, maybe something will come of that one day, but that was uh, that was uh, if anything a, a a small attempt at trying to get my brain working in the pandemic and um, you know, may, maybe one day I'll be the voice of, you know, uh, some ridiculous product and you'll hear me on the radio, you know, flogging, flogging mac and cheese from a packet or something, or I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll never be able to look at Marriage of Figaro and listen to Marriage of Figaro again without thinking yeah. of mac and cheese now. No political ads, of course. <laughs> you know, we have to keep everyone on side in the, in the arts. So <laughs> <laughs> That is true. You don't know where the next funding grant's going to go. Absolutely. Uh, but, but it's that thing, because, I mean, it, it just mentions accents on there, and I know that you need sort of different accents, but there's not much call for accents per se in... In opera or in or in the other scene you do, is there? Do you know, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. I love accents and I love impressions. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you don't really get to do many of them in opera um, unless you happen to have one of those uh, funny character roles. Like uh, Basilio in The Marriage of Figaro is an example of someone who sometimes puts on a, a, a silly accent or a silly way to sing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, your, your goal trying to sing opera is um, to try and make it as clear as possible because all of this, well, most of this music was written at a time before they had the, the translation running above the stage. Mm. So you want the audience to be able to understand as much as possible um, when, you're, when you're singing. So neutral is, uh, is the default position for accents. And it, it's the same irrespective of whether you personally speak, speak the language or not. You, you have to make um, as much effort to to create sound that is neutral and understandable for your audience. And, um, yeah, I mean, so, so, uh, but my understanding of the way the voice, the voiceover, um, uh, sort of business works as well is that the neutral, relaxed, natural accent that you have inherently in yourself, your is, natural voice is usually, usually what, what want. most mm. people want because mm. it gives you more scope for expression and finding your natural voice increases your ability to use your natural um, voice to express and impress and and that's what we're all about in uh, in live acoustic classical music mm. so is there a role in opera that uh, you haven't quite got to yet that oh, uh, look, you want to get your teeth into 100% I, I i would i would love at some stage uh, to to do a giovanni i think he's mm. Or with the mandolin character, yeah. Well, <clears throat> not not just to play the mandolin, but I think <laughs> that would be an added bonus. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting role now um, as well to do, and I, I would I would love to try and do a production that had a where you sympathise with him. Um, I've seen several productions uh, of of that opera where Giovanni is a he's a, just a complete monster, and that takes it out of the realm of believability. One of the most powerful things I've ever experienced was rehearsing that piece as a young artist in 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 the verbier festival 
and um, I was I was rehearsing as 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 um, as Don Giovanni, and in that famous duet, you know, La Chiarem La Mano. Usually, you do you know, lots of acting. You're trying to force this young woman to go with you because you're, you're going to marry her. Of course, you are. No, you're not. And our uh, our director said, "Well, I wonder what it would be like if you just sat in a chair and did nothing." And it was absolutely extraordinary. Mm. It's so awkward because you're asking someone to do something for you. I'd love the opportunity to try and find a modern Don Giovanni mm. because there are people who are magnetic. Everyone's been in a room and you've just met someone and gone, "Oh my goodness, yeah, I can't take my eyes off you. I can't." I can't be away from this person. They're just an incredible, incredible person to be around. Mm. And um, I think there's scope for that. And he's a, he's a complicated one, but I, th- I think it could be really magical. So that that's definitely top of my list of something that I would love to try. And, um, you know, a, a, a Votek, I mean, is, is just awesome. It's a little bit more niche, but, you know, obviously not now, but I, I, I would love to tackle that at some stage. I think it's one of the most um, incredible sort of visceral roles for, for baritone, re- really, really dream stuff. Watching this new production of The Ring Cycle in Zurich recently has also opened my eyes to the variety of voices that can be used in Wagner. Uh, and Wagner operas, um, I always had this you know, misconception that they were all about, you know, horned Valkyries and just loud, <laughs> loud voices, you know, a la, you know, um, Looney Tunes. And then you go and you watch something. And if you get good singers, it can be so text driven mm. um, and it can be really exciting and a good production can just be magic and you can't take your eyes off it. So I think um, there's obviously merit in all sorts of music, but I would love, I would love to sing some of that more serious stuff and see how it fits, you know, sing some of those baby those baby roles, sing some more of the Mozart roles, sing some more Handel. I mean, Handel wrote pretty evil characters for baritone, but there there are a couple there, like you know, even Menor is. Aren't the really baritones normally evil? As a as a no as a no. no. No, I mean t- tenors are usually the love interests, but um, well, that's probably what I'm thinking. All of these, all of these stereotypes are meant to be broken. Um, so we have, <laughs> we have we have to find ways to put things on stage that are that are interesting for audiences and uh, and and fun for the performers because uh, you know there, there's nothing better than watching people enjoy themselves on a stage or enjoy something that they that they're good at. Well, Morgan, it's been absolutely sensational having you here today. But before we let you go, you do have one more piece to introduce. And this is off-genre compared to everything else that we've heard I today. know. It's, I, I, awesome. I, want, I wanted to cover all bases for you. So um, now this this is not someone who can necessarily be marvelled for his uh, fabulous um, operatic singing technique. But I remember being introduced to Max Raba and the Palace Orchestra by my friend Jack Simons back when we were doing... Uh, Notes from Underground, uh, this um, uh, one of their first sort of operatic ventures as, as Sydney Chamber um, Opera, and uh, we were uh, rehearsing something, and he said, "Oh my goodness, have you ever listened to um, this particular band and singer do Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? It's some of the best brass playing I've ever heard in my life." And sure enough, it is. I mean, some of the brass playing in this recording is just so exacting and so German. But there's a real soul and a real heart to the way Max Rava sings. And it's, um, yeah, so it's definitely on a playlist uh, for a reason. And in a genre like opera, it's all about communication. Communication is, is in all genres of music. So this is I Won't Dance by Max Rava and his Palast Orchestra. I think it's just a really heartfelt, beautiful way to end this 
um, lovely, lovely afternoon with you. So thank you. Morgan Pierce, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, Simon. Baritone Morgan Pierce. Follow everything that Morgan is up to via Instagram at Morgan Pierce Voice or via his website, morganpierce.co.uk. That's the program for today. Find us in your podcast app by searching 2MBS In Conversation or visit 2MBSFindMusicSydney.com slash In Conversation. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Find Music Sydney. I won't dance, don't ask me. I won't dance, don't ask me. I won't dance, mad I'm with you. My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. You know what? You're lovely. And so what? I'm lovely. But oh, what you do to me? I'm like an ocean wave that bumped on the shore. I feel so absolutely stomped on the floor. When you dance, you're charming and you're gentle. Especially when you do the continental. But this feeling isn't purely mental For heaven rest us, I'm not as best as And that's why I won't dance, why should I? I won't dance, how could I? I won't dance, merci beaucoup I know that music leads the way to romance So if I hold you in my arms, I won't dance